electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, when will this end? The House Speaker crisis somehow getting even more chaotic. We'll go live to Capitol Hill for the breaking developments. We're going to talk more about Tesla, the earnings for Tesla. There we go. All right. Tesla numbers, they are coming out. They are out. And there is news on the Cybertruck. We're going to have that for you. Plus, offshore wit. Look, just put, put it on me and we're just going to talk, by the way. Offshore wit, guys. This is last night's show. That is the start of last call. This is what happens, folks. I am Brian Sullivan. We got a lot, trust me, a lot of good stuff coming up in last call. So just just see what happens. Belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. All right, that, my friends, is the beauty of live television. All right, we'll do it live. All right, good evening here. Good afternoon out west. I am Brian Sullivan. All of that ahead, but first up on last call, should we call it Netflix? The company just announced blockbuster earnings, and yes, more price hikes. Subscribers may hate it, but investors, they love it. Netflix stock is soaring. Julia Borston on the earnings call, which just wrapped up a few minutes ago. Julia, what was maybe... One or two most important things that we heard on that well, call. The, the most important thing, Brian, what's behind that soaring stock is a big, big beat when it comes to subscriber numbers. Netflix adding 8.76 million subscribers in the quarter. That's three and a quarter million more subscribers than anticipated. And that's thanks in large part to a successful crackdown on password sharing. The company has been able to convert borrower households into paying members. So we're going to continue the rollout uh, for the next couple of quarters. And I think you know folks are trying to figure out how much how much juice is left there. And I would say we anticipate that we will have incremental acquisition, incremental ads for the next several quarters. We've seen that in the last couple of quarters. I think also worth noting that that was on top of also very healthy organic, meaning not driven by page sharing growth. The company also saying it's seeing growing adoption of its ad-supported plan with membership of those plans accounting for 30% of signups, and that's up 70% quarter over quarter. Now, to push more subscribers to this advertising plan, Netflix is keeping the price of its ad-supported and standard plans the same, but it's hiking the basic plan by $2 to $12 a month and the premium plan by $3 to $23 a month. We think we're in a great position to win some of those dollars. We've got great content uh, that brands want to be next to. We're a safe place for brands to exist. we got great engagement from our members. That's a really strong foundation um, to work with. But we got a lot of work, and we know we have a lot of work to fulfill that potential. 
The company explaining why it's so confident in these price hikes, saying it has a, quote, exceptionally strong fall and winter schedule coming up. They also say they're working to fuel the fandom with consumer products and experiences, including a new Netflix house concept. This is a physical flagship destination where they're going to be offering food and retail, of course, all tied to their shows. Brian? Yeah, House of Mouse, Soho House, and the Netflix house, I guess. Uh, Julia Borston, very quickly, is it just, we were talking about this before the show, is it just me or does it seem like these price hikes are coming like every couple weeks? I'm well, being Netflix a little facetious, not, has but not, you get has it. has not yes. hiked its prices um, in the past year. But I do think you're right to notice a lot of what we call funflation or entertainflation, this idea that the cost of streaming is going up. And what it really reflects is the cost of producing all of this content um, and the fact now that Netflix feels like they can get away with these price hikes. They feel like they have the engagement from their fans, that they know they're delivering something people want to pay for. But I also wouldn't overlook the fact, Brian, that by hiking the prices for their most expensive plan. They do hope they will drive more people to that lower cost plan that has ads because that way Netflix will be able to build up its ad business and have that mm. dual revenue stream that is so valuable. Um, yeah, it's amazing. More people choosing to pay than go with the ads. But hey, if we can just make up a cute name for inflation, it's not inflation. It's funflation. Julia Borston, thank you very much. All right. Let's talk more about this and the tech industry at large and bring in Plexo Capital founding managing partner, Hello, Tony. Uh, Lo, it's great to have you back. Listen, just create, create some fun name, entertainmentflation. I mean, how, how much longer? It's unbelievable. But it feels like every week somebody's raising their prices. At what point does this industry kind of reach its tipping or breaking point? Well, it may happen as a result of the strikes, which have reduced the amount of content available. You know, how happy will people be paying more money for less content? We'll, we'll have to find out. Well, investors clearly like it. It doesn't appear to damage necessarily Netflix subscriber base at all. But I I kind of said this and we talk a lot about, you know, energy transition on the show low. I don't know if you see it with EVs and car. I feel like we're kind of like in the gas car to EV thing, but for TV, right? Take an incredibly profitable industry, cable, cable television. Not everybody's happy with it, by the way. And then you're going to convert or transition to an incredibly unprofitable business, which, of course, is streaming with and right now it's EVs, with, with no clear path to profitability. This is part of the reason why we've seen these price hikes, you know, and, you know, fortunately for Netflix, they, they are generating money with their business, but the other folks in the space have increased prices, I don't know, maybe 25% or so overall, maybe this past year. And so it'll be good for Netflix to, to kind of play catch up. I think Julia's point was, was spot on. Her last point around the strategy for the new pricing model with Netflix, because as we're seeing a mix shift, right, they're bringing on a lot of these new subscribers as a result of the crackdown. Now, these are the most price sensitive people. That's why they were using it for free. And so the goal is, can Netflix shift those folks over to the ad supported model? Now, one of the complications that we're seeing is some of the advertisers are balking at spending more on the platform on the ad-supported platform until it can achieve more scale. So in order for us to kind of look at a lot of these average revenue per user numbers, we need to recognize that with the mix shift, more users coming in that were 
getting it for free and they're going to be the most price sensitive expansion and growth in the Netflix user base and other geographies that are also price sensitive. It's important for them to really be successful at getting this ad supported tier correct. Why? It's only 5.75% of subscribers of the ad tier, which is up from 3%. I get it. But 6% is an incredibly low number. So why is it so important that Netflix low tries to go to the, is that so they can train us to relove ads? So someday they'll just not have an ad, they won't have not an ad tier tier. Yeah, I think it's really around these new users coming in that are going to be very price sensitive. And so the ability to be able to have that additional revenue stream from those users, from the ad supported model, that's what's going to justify that mix shift, which is naturally going to drag the average revenue per user down with more price conscious users. So Netflix needs to make sure this new ad supported model can have the advertisers that will come and spend the money on it to be able to compensate for that decrease in these new users that are more price sensitive. We shall see. Low Tony, it's a, listen, it's a big story. You start adding all these services up and you're kind of getting to the price of of cable. Low, thank you very much. Thanks, sir. All right. In the meantime, the market giveth and the market taketh away. Stocks giving back much of what they made earlier in the week. All the major indexes down. The Nasdaq down more than one and a half percent. Inside the S&P 500, the biggest winner of the day, Dexcom. Bit of a bounce back. It's down 40 percent in three months over Ozempic and weight loss drug concern. And for the biggest decliner, that is lithium miner Albemarle, down almost 10 percent. A lot of concern about lithium availability and lithium cost and Bank of America cutting Albemarle to an underperform, basically a sell and slashing its price target. Ouch. All right, we are just getting revved up here on Last Call. And up next, trouble at Tesla. All their price cuts beginning to weigh on the stock. We're going to have it and some major news on the Cybertruck. Plus, Disney revealing how much ESPN is making for the first time ever. We're going to show you some of the numbers and why the AI and weight loss drug revolutions may not live up to all the hype. That's ahead. Stick around. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Time for tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the headlines you're going to be talking about tomorrow morning, CNBC style. And first up, a significant update to a story that we brought to you earlier this week. The U.S. Treasury Department says it is now issuing six-month licenses to allow transactions in Venezuela's oil and gas industries. This follows a deal reached between Venezuela's Nicolas Maduro regime 
and its political opponents to ensure, I mean, pinky swear, fair elections next year. The hope being more Venezuelan oil will be in the global supply chain, maybe try to keep a lid on prices, especially if something were to happen to some Iranian barrels. Just throwing that out there. All right, next up. Costco's longtime CEO Craig Jelinek is stepping down on January 1st. COO Ron Vacris will be taking over. Jelinek is not fully stepping away from the company, though. He will serve in an advisory role and assist in the transition through April of 2024. Investors don't seem to be too concerned, though. Costco stock, eh, down a half a percent on the news. Fun fact, by the way, Ron Vacris, the incoming CEO, has been at Costco for more than 40 years. And the best part of the story is... He started as a forklift driver, forklift driver to CEO. Cool story. Only in America. All right. In other news that you're going to be talking about tomorrow, Tesla shares taking a hit after earnings. Investors not too happy about declining margins on every car sold. However, maybe some decent news on the long-awaited and much-hyped Cybertruck. Auto and airline industry reporter Phil Lebeau has more on Tesla. And we're going to get to the airlines as well. Phil. Brian, we went into this call thinking, okay, what's Elon going to tell us? Well, this was a pretty subdued call. You might want to say he was managing expectations. That's why the stock steadily went lower as the call went on. And really, it it was uh, kind of a rough afternoon if you were a Tesla investor and you were optimistic about what's coming up. They missed on the top and the bottom line in terms of Q3 earnings. The automotive gross margins, excluding zero emission vehicle credits, came in at 16.3%. The street was expecting 17.6%. And the pricing pressure impact, you cannot deny that it is there. That's the reason for what really is a, a company that's feeling pressure, especially when it comes to vehicle pricing right now. What about deliveries? Well, we got the deliveries last month, so we knew what they were going to be for the third quarter. That's not new. What about the projection for 1.8 million vehicles? Yes, they say they will deliver that many this year. And the Cybertruck deliveries, they are expected to start next month. Delivery event here in Texas on November 30th. But Elon Musk tempered expectations beyond that. I just want to temper expectations for Cybertruck. Um, it's a great product, but financially, it will take, I don't know, a year to 18 months before it is a significant positive cash flow contributor. And as you take a look at shares of Tesla, they were also asked, as they always are, about full self-driving. When are we going to have robo-taxis? Kind of danced around it, Brian, and didn't really answer the question, mm. which is what a lot of people are saying. There's no projection in terms of when we will see robo-taxis, fully autonomous vehicles out on the road with nobody behind the wheel. That is the goal of Tesla, mm-hmm. and many believe that ultimately that's where the, the value of Tesla lies, but putting a date on that at this point, it's still not there. Okay, Phil, uh, i got to talk about the airlines as well for two different reasons. Number one, you've got yep. two big exclusive interviews tomorrow, one on Squawk Box with American Airlines CEO Robert Isom, and then another on the exchange with Alaska Air CEO Ben Minucci. So I urge everybody to tune in for both of those. But airline stocks got destroyed today. United Airlines fell down 10% in an already weak tape. What's going on here? There is no confidence among investors that the airline industry will ultimately be able to ride out this wave of demand that we're seeing and come out on the other side 
as strong as they have been, let's say, a year ago. Remember a year ago when they were going gangbusters and people said, well, okay, here we go. The airlines, this is proof that people are going to get back out there. We're going to see continued demand. All of this talk, Brian, about the consumer slowing down is really weighing on the low-cost carriers. I'm talking about the Frontiers, the Spirits. Uh, it's impacting JetBlue. Look at those stock prices. Many of them are close to multi, multi-year lows, maybe close to all-time lows in some cases. And that's a result of people saying, well, look, I know Delta is going to be okay and United are going to be okay because of the premium passenger flying internationally, paying up for service. What about the person who's on Spirit? And by the way, Spirit, when it reports, uh, I think it's November 1st, they're not doing a conference call afterwards. Now, that's not a reflection on whether or not it's bad results. Who knows? They haven't given a reason, but they're just not doing a conference call after that call. And, and look, investors just don't have a lot of confidence on the lower end of the market right now. It's generally never a real good thing when they don't do the call. But we'll have to wait and see. Phil Lebeau on Tesla and the airlines. Phil, thank you very much. All right, let's dive into next steps for Tesla with our next guest with us tonight is future fund managing partner and co-founder Gary Black. Gary, your take on Tesla's quarter and the Cybertruck news. Well, it wasn't a great quarter. Um, you know, as Phil said, they missed on earnings. They delivered 66. The street was over 72. The bigger issue was the auto gross margin. X-Reg credits came in at 16.3 versus 17.7. And I would argue the quality of the earnings was light. Uh, they got a lot of red credits in. Uh, their tax rate was low. And on the conference call, what people were looking for was one thing, some confidence that auto gross margins had bottomed. And Elon just kept harping on affordability. And, you know, you almost got the sense that there might be more price cuts in the making. And, the, you know, the problem we have as analysts is the demand elasticity has been close to zero this year, even though they've cut price so much. So I think what you're going to see tomorrow, and this is why the stock's down after hours, you're going to see analysts cut their 2024 estimates probably by four or five percent. Uh-huh. And that's probably why the stock's down five percent after hours. Cybertruck. I don't know. We've been that- talking about this truck for a long time and it's supposed to be rolled out in November of 2021. Now they're saying really promise yeah. we actually mean it this time, November of this year. So basically the end of next month. You're very bullish on the Cybertruck. Are you bullish on this date for the Cybertruck? Yeah, it seems like the date that keeps moving. Uh, look, Cybertruck is the biggest thing that's going to help Tesla stock. It's one of the reasons we're in it. It'll produce a halo effect for the entire franchise. People will see it. It'll be like a rolling billboard. They'll go to the website. They'll find it. And maybe they buy a Model 3 or Model Y. I'm very optimistic about the Cybertruck. When you ask uh, truck drivers in their 30s and 40s, it's something they love. You know, And if you talk to a 60-year-old truck driver, you know, pickup truck driver who drives a F-150, he may not be as excited, but I think you're going to see a halo effect to the entire franchise once it gets out there. November 30th, I hope it gets out there November 30th. As you said, we've been waiting for this for a few years, but it sounds like, and when you, you see like, you know, T-shirts are going out to stores, there's cyber trucks all over the country now. It feels like it'll happen at the end of November. So it's why we stay with the stock. And look, we don't like the fact that auto gross margins missed. We don't like that. There was no indication that they bottomed. But when I look at the stock, it's 55 times next year's earnings. It's grown at 35 to 40 percent a year. I'm a growth manager. It's hard for me to find stocks with that level of P.E. versus growth. It's about 1.4 times. So 
we like the stock still, even yeah. though estimates are going to come down tomorrow. Yeah, this uh, it's like the sign in the Irish pubs, free beer tomorrow is the sign. But, t- but it's always today, the Cybertruck. We'll see. Like, Look forward to seeing one on the road. Gary Black, thank you very much. All right, next up in this week's edition of K-Parts Unknown, we're going to try to answer the question of the decade, maybe of our lifetime. Which will have a larger impact on the market? Artificial intelligence or weight loss drugs like Ozempic, Wegovy, and Mounjaro? Christina Partsinevelis, the K-Parts in K-Parts Unknown, is here. I mean, this is the battle of the century. AI, Ozempic. Both markets could potentially be worth trillions, and I'll get to the exact amount. Mm. But we're still so early on in both of those markets that when I give you a number that is based off of research from various banks, it's a quantification that is on hypothetical situations or scenarios. And that has not stopped the fact that you've seen the run-up in NVIDIA stock on AI up 195%, uh, Arista Networks up, what, 60%. Mm-hmm. Uh, the list continues. C3 AI up 160%. We're showing this on your screen year to date. And just tonight, we find out that OpenAI is in talks to sell shares at a valuation of $86 billion. This This is a startup with Microsoft in there that was valued at like a third of that just a few months ago. So this is all about the AI hype. And then if we're talking about weight loss drugs, uh, Eli Lilly, their own version, that stock is up over 60 percent. Nova Nordis, I should say, up of what, 47 percent. But to your point, is it justified? Is it revolutionary? Is it It is for the people losing weight and maybe helping their health out. Right. But. To the people losing weight, how many people are actually on it? The portion of the American population, it's only estimated to be about 7% of the American population will be on weight loss drugs by 2035. 7% is a pretty substantial number. I think I've seen bigger numbers than that. Well, I'm taking a Morgan Stanley number. Fair enough. And they're also uh, uh, – Well, I'll tell you, here's the difference, though. With AI, it may take over the world and kill us all, okay? And I'm fine with it. So then we're dead. It doesn't really matter. Then we end our conversation. But but, but in a real way – listen, I'm an old man. I've been doing this a lot. I've seen a lot of these miracle drugs – where you get a headline one day that there's some hidden side effect no one knew about, and all exactly. of a sudden, I mean, we've seen this with Vioxx. I don't know if you remember, Vioxx was a multi-billion dollar drug in America. <laughs> Terrible, boom, gone off the market, lawsuits up the wazoo. I'm not saying that's going to happen here, mm-hmm. but with any pharmaceutical project, product, there has to be that level of at least awareness of risk. Precisely, and there's still so much confusion about the the repercussions. But if we're to make a comparison for AI, the market right now is valued mm. at about a hundred uh, billion dollars. It's estimated to be two trillion by tw- the end of this decade, 2030. For these weight loss drugs, the valuation, or I guess the market for uh, these weight loss drugs, is about a hundred billion by 2035. So it is a smaller portion. Is that the but, global or that U.S. for weight loss? Uh, that's global. Okay, global. But that doesn't account. The for U.S. The- has been exporting obesity for some time. I'm not going to laugh at that. But no, it's, I'm, it's, it's, it's not, I'm not being funny about it. It's, it's true. There's that, what, 750 million people that are obese in this well, world. A lot of the products that we, set, we sell. I, yeah, the, but. Not my opinions. Google it. No, no, it, but it's Bing true. It. That, that I'm, giving you AI sti- I'm giving you these statistics, but it's not factoring in the trickle-down effect of these weight loss drugs. Walmart CEO just last week, right? He talked about comparing the data from those that are buying these prescription drugs and their shopping habits. They've noticed a drop in snacks. So then a moment he said that, Pepsi share price, Mondelez share price that makes uh, snacks. Both, you can see on your screen. I still don't know how Walmart knows who's on on Ozempic. Is it because they're pharmacy? Yes. But isn't that some sort of a HIPAA violation? Are you supposed to know that Brian Sullivan's on Mount Jaro and so he's not buying Oreos anymore? When you become a customer to Walmart, 
those things is true. When you become a customer to Walmart, you you are signing away your rights. They have the data. You checked. You is read the fine print, and that's why they're able to look at your. What buying am I signing at Walmart? And, and why am I signing anything at Walmart? It doesn't matter. The whole point of this is that the potential for both of these, the potential for both of these markets, is exponential. However, the widespread adoption will take a while. McKinsey, for example, says the AI adoption and creating all of these applications is going to take anywhere from 8 to 27 years. Okay. So you have these run-ups in the stocks, but is it really justified? Because you're spending $30,000 per chip that's making these large language models. Will what kind of chips are we talking about? GPUs? Pringles? Or oh, bad joke. Semic- but will that will that sunk cost offset the incremental yeah. revenue that you're seeing in AI? So it, there's still a lot of confusion on the potential, but there's potential nonetheless, and you saw the reaction in the stock thus far. I'm still confused about what I'm signing at Walmart. Anyway, uh, Christina Parsonevelis. Sign away so much. Look at your phone, uh, I, everything's I, 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 well, I had a book here signed yeah. by the author who's coming up. All right, we're going to take it back. We've got a serious story ahead. A Gaza hospital blast fueling a frenzy of mis- and disinformation across the world. So... Why are social and traditional media companies sort of failing to rein it in? Ian Bremmer, up with that and more next. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. All right, welcome back. Overseas, the war in Gaza remains ongoing. President Biden wrapping up a trip to Israel earlier today. This after an explosion at a hospital in Gaza, which, according to a Palestinian official, killed hundreds of people on Tuesday night. Now, it remains unclear just how many people were killed, and it is still unknown which side was responsible for the blast, although American intelligence has suspected that a failed rocket from the Islamic Jihad militant group Hamas is to blame. President Biden weighing in earlier today. I'm deeply sad and outraged by the uh, explosion at the hospital in Gaza yesterday. And based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team, not, not you. But there's a lot of people out there who are not sure. All this in the world comes to grips with the horrendous event. Disinformation, by the way, about what is happening in the Middle East is on the rise on social media. But many are calling out traditional media as well for sharing unconfirmed information. Your next guest taking you through both the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal for their initial reporting that cited statements from Gaza and Hamas in regards to yesterday's hospital explosion without independently verifying the claims, if that indeed was possible. Joining us now, Eurasia Group President Ian Bremmer online. Ian, welcome. It's an important topic online. Both are able to change their headline. They both also put out a printed newspaper, and I'm assuming there are some copies that are still going around that have the original headline, potentially, but you get my point on this. How do we fix this? Well, Brian, let's be clear. They changed their headlines uh, very quickly, but it was on the back of the original headlines that you had a couple of members of Congress uh, that were saying that this was Israel that bombed and killed 500 Palestinians um, in a hospital. Uh, And then you had a number of countries 
in the Middle East that have all come out and reiterated that Israel bombed and killed Palestinian civilians, which meant that there was no second half of Biden's visit to the Middle East, no summit with the Palestinians, uh, the Jordanians and the Egyptians. I mean, frankly, this is showing you how, you know, disinformation from open source uh, uh, media um, is is leading uh, to significant negative impacts on the global stage. And it's very easy for The New York Times to change that around. It's very hard for the government of Saudi Arabia or Turkey or Egypt. I mean, the bar for them to suddenly say, oh, we got it wrong. Actually, no, it's it wasn't Israel. It was the Palestinians. And by the way, it's not a hospital. It was a hospital parking lot. And it wasn't 500 people killed. It was 30. It was 50. It's very hard to do that. And and most of them haven't done any such thing in the last 24 hours. This was incredibly bad yeah. uh, journalism on the fly, and it was incredibly unfortunate uh, in the region. It's incredibly dangerous because we showed a map, Ian, of where these protests were, right? Cairo, uh, Algeria, Tunisia, you had Turkey, you have Morocco, and many, many more. People taking to the streets to protest something that, that by the way, of course, we know the war is true, but this hospital attack, the source of it may not be accurate. And I think social media, as we know, can be a force for good and it can be a source for bad. In fact, social media was contributed to the Arab Spring a number of years ago. If you remember that, they said it's doing a good job for the Arab Spring. I think based on your tweets and some of the stuff that I've seen elsewhere, that in this case, it can also do a great, great deal of harm because bad information, wrong information is passed around instantaneously. And then even if it's changed, a lot of people don't see it or they don't believe it. They don't believe it. Um, and I think we're now in an environment that no matter what happens, no matter how much information is given that shows without a shadow of a doubt for anyone that wants to do the work, uh, that this actually was not an Israeli atrocity, um, that you're going to have the vast majority of people um, that already have decided that Israel is the enemy. Israel is, they're the bad guys. Uh, they're on the wrong team, as as President Biden might put it, um, that, uh, that they're the ones that are responsible. And again, the president of the United States left the country to go and try to promote um, a, a, a calm, uh, a calmer trajectory, to try to reduce the tension, stop this war from expanding beyond where it already is. He was able to see Netanyahu. He wasn't able to see the other side. And as a consequence of that, um, the Americans are now seen much more um, as, as promoting um, what people in the region will believe is a regime that just killed 500 yeah. Palestinians in cold blood in a hospital. I mean, that, that, is, that is the message that comes from all of this disinformation. And more civilians will get killed on the back of that. More anti-Semitic attacks will occur. More attacks on American embassies, on American tourists yeah. in the region. This is such a dangerous and irresponsible thing. And, and in the meantime, and very quickly, I know we got to go, but in the meantime, you're highlighting something else that's getting all the attention. Vladimir Putin making a rare out of Russia trip. He is visiting with Xi Jinping in Beijing, the Belt and Road Initiative. Some people see the timing of everything that's going on. And now this meeting as suspect. Nah, 
Not suspect. Okay. They organize that every year. By the way, it's not going very well. They had 36 heads of state show up last time they had it in 2019. 22 showed up this time around because the Chinese, as you know on CNBC, are not spending the kind of money they used to spend yeah. outside their country. Uh, or maybe out of money. Uh, Ian Bremmer, important topics. Thanks, Ian, welcome back anytime. Thank you very much. All right. Still ahead, Disney revealing how much ESPN is making for the first time ever. We're going to show you some of the numbers next. All right, welcome back. We've got a bonus tomorrow's news tonight for you. Disney giving us a peek at the financial health of ESPN. Figures just out in an SEC filing, the worldwide leader in sports generating more than $12.5 billion in annual revenue, or I should say through the first half of this year. But that revenue has been decreasing in recent quarters. It all comes as Disney is looking for a strategic partner for ESPN. Stock, by the way, Disney not moving much on that news. What does the future hold here? Let's talk about that and some other sports-related media stuff with RSE Venture CEO Matt Higgins. Uh, Matt, what do you what do you make of this? For the first time ever, we're going to get kind of a look under the hood at ESPN. I think it's really interesting. We can make a lot of extrapolations. Their top line last year was about seventeen billion. They made almost three billion in profit. But what's interesting is their uh, subscriber base is down from a uh, hundred million at its peak in two thousand eleven to. 75 million. So 25% of those cord cutters have uh, disappeared. And it's not like their cost, uh, their cost structure has gone down. Their cost structures remain the same. So however profitable it is right now, imagine how profitable it was a decade ago. So they're basically holding on to a falling knife. They know it, which is why they're looking for a, a direct-to-consumer partner. Yeah. Now let's switch gears to the NBA, because I wonder if NBA's future is streaming TV, because the NBA is now entering, Matt, its first media rights negotiations in 10 years, a decade. And the NBA's biggest partners, ABC and the aforementioned ESPN, along with Warner Brother Discovery's TNT, pay $2.6 billion per year to televise basketball games. Okay, with networks, though, looking to trim costs, and the league reportedly considering creating a streaming package to fold more streamers like Amazon and Apple into the mix, that plan would require ESPN and TNT to buy fewer games but would ultimately let the league and maybe the players make more money when they increase the rights fees, which some people believe could double or more than double from 2.6 billion a year to five, six plus. Your take on this streaming discussion around the NBA. When you're a content distributor, you know, you have a love-hate relationship with sports rights. You can't live with them and you can't live without them. So there's been a lot of grousing of uh, TNT and an ESPN. You know, we can't afford it. We're not going to pay they're going to pay. Uh, Adam Silver is one of the best commissioners in all of sports. He's done a tremendous job basically taking uh, NBA around the globe, and he's going to get compensated for it. So there's a few dynamics at work. On the streaming side, uh, you have you know, you have Amazon, you have uh, YouTube, you have Apple. We're all, I think, going to make a play for those regionalized uh, games. Apple, for example, did MLS. The messy effect is not enough. They need They need more content. And I think what you're going to see is NBA is going to want to stay on linear TV because they're going to want the brand reach. And yet they're going to want to take advantage of streaming. So one of my companies, Relevant Sports, uh, sells the media rights for uh, Champions League in the United States. So we have a pretty good sense mm -hmm. of the interest out there in the market. And there's a ton of interest in NBA rights. I think they're going to end up somewhere between two to three X what they got before. Wow. Those are some big numbers. And by the way, you can't catch TNT probably in, you know, Beijing, but you, you can probably watch it in a streaming service. I'm imagining that's 
Part of it, Matt Higgins, by the way, also author of Burn the Boats, Toss Plan B Overboard and Unleash Your Full Potential. I just want to show that to our audience. Matt, thank you. Thank you for holding it up. I appreciate it. Uh, you didn't even ask us to, and that's, but that's how we roll. Matt Higgins, <laughs> thank you. We've got a library here. Wait to see what's next. All right, Holy Household Wealth, a stunning new report laying out the impact of the pandemic. Bethany McLean on set with that and her must-read new book on COVID's fallout and its biggest lessons. Next. All right, welcome back to Last Call. And if you're not sitting down, you're going to want to for this stunning new data out of the Federal Reserve. The Fed says that median household net worth rose, excuse me, 37% during the three years around the pandemic. That is the largest increase since the survey began back in 1989. Staying home, low interest rates, and millions in PPP loans and other COVID money helping many families, but not everybody. A new book titled The Big Fail takes a critical look on the government's response to the pandemic, particularly, quote, what the pandemic revealed about who America protects and who it left behind. With us tonight is one of the two authors of that book. That is Bethany McLean, also a CNBC contributor and contributing editor at Vanity Fair, wrote the book with Joe Nocera. Um, and, I, and I can't wait to read it because as our, anybody who watches me or follows me on Twitter knows I've been critical of certain parts. What is your biggest takeaway about when we knew we were doing things wrong? Well, I think some people. You live in Chicago, so. I still don't think some people admit we did anything wrong. Well, they won't, because then you have to admit you were wrong. But I think when the data started to come out about what this had done to education, and particularly to underprivileged kids' access to education, I think that's making a lot of people take a a, a breath and say, wait, what went wrong here? And and you live in Chicago, and you live in the city of Chicago. And, you know, again, at the beginning of the pandemic, the first number of months, you can't blame anybody. It was terrifying. It was panic monger. I remember one time my wife went out to get milk. I was like, are you trying to kill the whole family? Don't go get milk. We'll, we'll drink water. And it was, it was a really scary time. But after a number of months, you just started to look at the data, and you kind of got a clearer picture of what COVID was in certain ways. And I would imagine that children have got to be up there on your list on who we failed in this book. particularly less privileged children, because more privileged children were able to continue to do school either via Zoom or because their schools were open. It's those kids who needed their public schools who got who got terribly left behind. And I think to your point, one of the big themes of our book is how COVID highlighted and exacerbated problems, existing problems, deep problems in our society. And lockdowns were one of those things. If you were wealthy, you could lock down. You could you could you had multiple rooms in your home. You could keep your job via Zoom. You You could could go to your second home. You could order your food and have other people deliver it. You could order your goods via Amazon. If you weren't wealthy and you were an essential worker, what happened to you then? And so and then and then the pandemic exacerbated those inequalities by depriving children of their access to education. And I think to me, that has got to be the biggest thing is the educational side. We know how critical education is to everything. Early education in particular, it's also critical to health outcomes in life. Lower economic achievement due to lack of education can lead to worse health outcomes. And here's the thing. And, and I was on Twitter in 2020, 20, late 2020, saying principals I know were saying 30% of kids were showing up, even, on, uh, even online. 70% of kids at some working class schools in New Jersey vanished. They just, they, I have a friend who's a 
Ninth, he's at a high school. He said he's got ninth graders who can't read. Yeah, true across, true across America. And it, it's, it makes you want to cry, schools. honestly. Yeah, it does. It's, it's, it's terrible. And so then you have to ask, okay, well, the bar for lockdown should have been really, really high. And when you look at the data, it's pretty inconclusive as to whether they even save lives. And of course, particularly in America, where those most at risk from COVID, like the elderly in nursing homes and those who live in multi-generational housing, we didn't do anything in particular to protect them. You know, I'm sure you already have, and I admire you writing the book with Joe, you know you're going to take a lot of heat because people are going to say, what are you trying to kill grandma? Well, I took a lot of heat even initially during the pandemic on Twitter when I was very vocal about the need to get kids back in, in, in school. And what I was shocked by, to your point earlier about, politi- about, about misinformation and why it happens, I was shocked by people saying, well, I didn't know you were a Trump supporter. And I said, well, what, what, does, what does my views on children and their education have to do with my politics? In fact, it's the opposite. I, I, care about, I care about these kids. And I think that's one of the easy shortcuts we, we took, which is that if you disagree with me, well, you must be a bad human being. And I think that's- Well, that's, what, that's where we killed the debate. And that's really- That's been, where we did. We, when people started putting out, so, hey, why does every other Western nation have their children in school? Right. And we don't. Oh, shut up. Right. Like we, we, we killed the debate. Well, it's the most dangerous thing for our society that we've killed debate and that we label everybody. We come up with a way to dismiss everybody who disagrees. With if you us. criticize one part of the government or government reaction, you automatically must be on the other side. Right. By the way, can we just remind everybody? And this is not a political statement either way, that all the lockdowns occurred when Trump was president. That that is that is true. That is true. The vaccine and- was created under Trump's tenure. So I don't see people are saying, well, it's Trump. I don't it is, get it. It is, although one of the stories we tell in the book is Operation Warp Speed, which I think is actually one of the inspiring moments in in, in this terrible thing, yeah. this terrible pandemic. And the really interesting thing about Warp Speed is that it really was done by people who did it for the country, not because they were Trump, Trump supporters and not because they yeah. wanted to further the Trump administration. They did it for the right reasons. They did it because it was the right thing to do. The eye-opening thing for me was that during COVID, and don't judge me, I went to 21 states. I never stopped moving. I drove, I flew, I just did whatever. And I was always alone. It was like, are you nervous? I was like, no, I'm the only one on the plane. Yeah. Or I'm in my car by myself, right? Even if I was nervous, I, I was alone. But then I started to realize pretty early on that most of the country was not acting like the, the Northeast. Yeah. If you go to Wisconsin, north of Chicago, where you are, if you go to South, I was in a, South Carolina in February, 2021, people were back in the offices, watching college basketball, bars are packed. Well, we and it was, it was shocking to me that half the country almost never changed at all. Well, we tell the story in the book of Florida versus California. With with the same, with the same, by the way, what did you come to? Because I know I've been running a spreadsheet since day one and just numbers. Yep. And I don't see any meaningful difference among any state. There, there, there is not. And so Florida, in Florida, Ron DeSantis, love him, hate him, um, followed a pretty data-driven approach to it. He looked at this. He said, here's who the pandemic is killing. We're going to try to protect our seniors in nursing homes, and we're going to let people go about and, 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 live, and live their lives. Yeah. Now, I think DeSantis went off the rails later on, and so there, there are no easy heroes in this, in this book, unfortunately. Your easy heroes are nice. Yeah. But I think that's an important story to look at, and nobody could look at it. We had to call, we had to vilify DeSantis and say that he was, killing people because the number the number by the way california's numbers are about the same as north carolina there's no state that's I've run the day. It's all publicly available. Right. There's not a lot of differentiation. Well, you know that battle cry during the pandemic followed the science. Uh, oh, God. Sci- it turned in, and then it ruined science. Science. Sci- science is a process of asking questions. Is the By the way, it- I can't wait to read it or listen to it. I do a lot of audiobooks. Bethany McLean and Joe, it's good stuff. I'm sure it's going to get a lot of attention. 
Probably not all of it positive, but I know you can handle it. Um, Bethany, thank you. Good to see you in person. All right, coming up, a big bet on Florida's hurricane season set to pay off for Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett, but probably not the kind of bet you'd think. Plus, the mounting headwinds for ocean-based wind energy. We're going to head live to what could be the largest wind farm in America. Next. All right, time for your Wednesday RBI, and today it's about storms and investing legend Warren Buffett, because as odd as it may seem, in this story, they go together. Barron's reporting that Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway is going to make billions on a bet against storms, specifically storms in Florida. Now, Berkshire owns a major property insurer, and earlier this year decided to take on about $15 billion worth of risk exposure if a major storm or storms hit Florida this season. The weather cooperated for Buffett. Florida had just one smaller storm, thank God, called Hurricane Adalia. And so now with the hurricane season nearing its end, Berkshire stands to profit from that exposure big time. What's even more random but interesting is that over the past few years, Berkshire Hathaway had largely gotten out of Florida insurance because they viewed it simply as too risky with climate change. But that changed this year. We don't know why. But whatever calculus Buffett, Berkshire, and his team made in terms of risk versus reward around this year's Florida storm season, it worked out. It kind of makes you wonder what Buffett and his team knew that maybe others didn't. And let's see if they make the same bet next year. Buffett winning big on lack of Florida storms. Definitely random, but interesting. All right. Now let's talk about energy and giant offshore windmills, because Dominion Energy is working to build out America's biggest wind farm, off the Virginia coast. It is a massive project, literally, but it is not without its headwinds, including higher costs and the lack of American manufacturing of many of the components. Pippa Stevens went offshore for us to take a closer look and joins us now live tonight. I know it's been a long day, Pippa. We appreciate you and the team still being there. Hey, Ryan. Well, it is worth getting a little seasick to see these wind turbines up close. We got to tag along with Dominion's offshore wind team yesterday during a Coast Guard rescue exercise, part of its safety preparations as it gears up to add more than 170 turbines to its project. Each will be over 800 feet tall, supplying power to some 660,000 homes. The total cost of the project is $10 billion, but the Inflation Reduction Act provides about $3 billion in tax credits. The next phase of construction begins soon. Monopiles, or the foundations that support the turbines, are on their way from Germany as we speak. Dominion relies on European suppliers because domestic supply chains for offshore wind simply do not exist today. But Dominion's COO, Diane Leopold, said this project has the potential to change that. These suppliers have been looking in the United States to expand their facilities. So take those existing designs and let's start building them in the United States. So it has to start somewhere. And this project is one of the key uh, projects that they're looking at. Brian, they say they have about 90 percent of their costs locked in. So it's on budget and on time. But with a project this big, there are a lot of moving parts. And this is, a, is the project guaranteed to go forward, Pippa? So they have approval from their regulator. They've secured all of their key permits. They're starting onshore construction later this year, and the turbines are going in the water come May 1. So you, you build them onshore and then put them in 
offshore. So you have to build the infrastructure that's going to receive the power from the turbines onshore. And then next May, because they have to work around the migratory patterns of certain whales. And so they have a window to install the turbines. That begins on May 1. So that's when they're targeting. Oh, interesting story. A giant project in many, many ways. Pippa Stevens. Thank you very much. Pippa, appreciate that. Folks, thank you for tuning in to Last Call. We will see you tomorrow night. Have a fantastic rest of your day. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.